0: The work I'm interested in doing through YouTube is reaching people who care a little bit about coffee, and I want to find them, uh, entertain them, gain their trust, and take them on a journey over time where they see coffee as having a greater value in their lives.
1: Hi, and welcome back to the Fifth Wave podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of coffee business magazine, Fifth Wave. And today we bring you a very special episode. Last week in our Secrets of Coffeepreneurs episode, we featured the multifaceted James Hoffman. James shared so many great insights and learnings with us that we felt compelled to release his interview in its entirety. As you may know, James is a former World Barista champion, the co-founder of Square Mile Coffee Roasters, author of the World Coffee Atlas, and a prolific YouTuber with more than 86 million views. So sit back, grab a coffee, and enjoy the enigmatic James Hoffman. Welcome to Fifth Wave. Um, really excited to be here today with James Hoffman, coffee entrepreneur extraordinaire. Um, welcome, James. Thank you for having me. Well, gosh, you wear so many hats. It's amazing. Um, founder of Square Mile, involved in brands like Proof Rock. You've got books, social media. Tell us a little bit about your journey in coffee. What are you? You know, in what am of, I? yeah, yeah, sort of. A, I don't know. I don't, you,
0: I've decided I don't, I don't have to know anymore. Like. Um, I'm not a huge fan of job titles because I think they make people, um, y- you know, uh, want to live in a little silo and actually not cross-pollinate sometimes that, you know, they they build a little box for themselves and they sit in it. And I don't particularly want to do that for me or anyone else really. So I don't have a title. I don't really, I don't really know what I would put on a business card if I still made those. I, I do coffee things mostly and then some other stuff, but, but mostly coffee things I think is fair. Um, I
1: like making stuff. Great. That's the easiest way of, I suppose, putting it. Sort of a lot of people know that you're the, you know, co-founder, founder, founder, owner of Square Mile Coffee. Mm -hmm. Is that where it all began? Yeah, I think um, business-wise. 2007,
0: I left my job. I was working as the national training manager for La Spaziale in the UK, sort of driving around all over the UK, working with coffee roasters, coffee suppliers on education and that kind of stuff. And, you know, the 2005 to 2007 was a different time of specialty coffee in the UK. It was kind of just bubbling under the surface, um, and kind of, you know, I think about Steve Penk from La He really fanned the flames early days of a specialty in the UK. So that was a you know a useful thing. But I got to the point where I sort of felt like I needed to stop telling people what to do, to go and do it, you know. And so I quit my job in in uh, June 2007. I. Knew I would compete in the World Breasted Championships in August 2007. I didn't think I would win. You know, I'd come fifth the year before in the Worlds. I was like, if I can do better than fifth, that would be a great result. And I'll come back and I'll get on with starting a coffee shop and we're going to roast inside the coffee shop. That was the the plan. I won the Worlds in, in Tokyo and that was a surprise and it sort of delayed everything. And we'd registered a company name without really thinking about it. And I'd filled it in on my form without really thinking about it. And so it was announced that James Hoffman of Mile Coffee Roasters had won the World Roaster Championships and people were like, what is this company? Like no one's, and I'm like, well, it's a sort of paper exercise at this point. Um, but then the global financial crisis happened. It seemed a bad time to sign a cafe unit. So we started roasting coffee and really focused on being a wholesale coffee roaster. And that was, you know, early 2008 and on, which was about the beginning of the boom of sort of specialty in London. So the timing seemed reasonable. Uh, but that's the, really the beginning, I suppose. And, I, you know, I went into that a passionate coffee person and very quickly realized I had an absence of business knowledge. And so, you know, a, a lot of my journey personally, the first couple of years the Square Mile was, was moving away from being an obsessive coffee person into being someone who could help run a business that made money
1: from coffee. I'd actually forgotten that you're a world brister champion <laughs> not that you can kind of forget those things permanently but um it was a long time ago yeah well when you know i was drafting the list here and you okay you're involved in books i mean so early days i'd, I'd written a
0: lot online i had a blog uh, in the days of blogs and and i think it was a long lasting blog because i chose to make it so and and you know a, a lot of the world of i hate the word content but kind of content creation just requires practice and and just turning up often and i did that i, re- I wrote a lot th- hundreds and thousands of posts this sort of honed my writing skill and also kind of pushed me into a role as a kind of communicator or educator in coffee. That's kind of how it went as well. And I think that was a driver behind some of the other decisions. So writing a book, The World Atlas of Coffee, I was approached by a publisher and, and that was the book I wanted to write. I didn't necessarily feel qualified to write it, but no one else was going to do it. I wanted to own it, you know, as in to actually have a book that was an atlas of coffee. I tried to buy one for years and nothing existed. So if no one else was going to write one, then I'll write one. And that went really well. That's gone ridiculously well. I think second edition's out, and I don't know hundreds of thousands of copies. I yeah, hear. I think so. I, I you think the last time I checked, it was about three hundred thousand. Wow, um, which mean, is a lot of books everywhere. these days. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Everywhere,
1: I just can't believe how many coffee venues and even bookstores that I see all over the world that atlas is there, and it's 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 already legendary. So I think the publishers did a
0: great job. I will say they made it a beautiful book, and they made it a book that enticed people into wanting to own it, read it. You know, you, you look the pictures the first time, and that's their job. And my job is to sort of get you the second time when you start to read and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, maybe another book soon. But wow. yeah, yeah, you know, I don't really like writing books, but I think it's um, it's going to be necessary. Do um, you want everything? Are we doing everything? Yeah, let's
1: let's let's see what you're right. involved in. Yeah, what, what, what you know maybe in order of um, we can go, we can do the whole list of. Do you want the whole yeah, let's, the let's whole list? Let's do the whole list. Yeah, right. right. um, everything. you you heard it first here on. Fifth way. Okay, so so
0: things that I did start, I'm not involved in anymore. So Square Mile was first. We co-founded a company called Brew by Hand uh, with another company called Coffee Hit in order to be a kind of Harrier distributor. Um, we ended up selling that business probably five or six years ago now, and I'm not really involved anymore. You know, certainly not operationally or anything else like that, but it's a still ongoing business. Proofrock, we acquired Proofrock when, you know, they sort of ran out of founders staying in London. They had three founders and slowly they sort of drifted away from London and then who was going to sort of steer the ship. So we agreed to sort of take control of Proofrock and that was a few years ago. We started a a sort of training business as well off on the side of that. And then from my relationship with um, Victoria Arduino or the Simonelli Group, I suppose more broadly... We set up in uh, in the uk a company called VA Machinery that was the sort of um importer of, of their equipment that's now uh, a joint venture with the manufacturer. so that's actually their branch office. Uh, but I'm still a board member. I still you know you know uh, have some input, not a lot because it's a well- steered ship there, but but if I'm can be useful, I'll do that. Um, I continue to work with them, with Simulati Group as a kind of consultant collaborator. We do projects, espresso machines, that kind of stuff. I have a, a role in kind of creation, design brief, development, testing, R&D, and then promotion
1: at the end of it. Uh, the books is one thing I'm going to start to forget stuff. And so that was the Black Eagle really, that was the the visible project that's come from that.
0: It was the, yeah, it was the sort of second one I'd worked on. I'd worked with with a part of a group on a grinder called the Mythos One that's been an enormous success for them. The Black Eagle was the first project that was kind of mine to sink my teeth into with them. And then um, we released in the last year and a bit. The Eagle one, obviously, pandemic time is another sort of stretchy time. So I don't remember when we launched it, but probably 18 months ago uh, as a sort of, um, sort of slightly more wider appeal product. The Black Eagle, I think, was very targeted at the high end. Coffee Jobs? Coffee Jobs. There we go. Thank you. I'd started a, a Coffee Jobs website because people kept emailing me either asking for jobs or asking for a staff. And I desperately wanted them to meet outside of my inbox. So I built like a very cheap, simple website and sort of, it was free to use for about a year because I just, I just wanted less email. Whatever it cost to run a few hundred pounds was better than getting the emails. And then that sort of morphed into a business that I sold. um, When did I sell that? Maybe four or five years ago as well. I'm passionate about people finding work and developing skill sets, but I'm not going to run that business. And so, yeah, someone had a home for it. And for me, that's, Great if it can find a home. I'm very happy for that to be the case. So that was coffee jobs, and then now I have a separate merch business because YouTube gives you an avenue to sell stuff. I didn't want to just do boring t-shirts and hoodies like everyone on YouTube does. So we do sort of limited run things. So the the business is called tens, hundreds, thousands because we do short, medium, or large runs of stuff. Um, and w- you know we'll make kind of bespoke products, and then when they're gone, they're gone, and that's kind of a fun part of what kind of products do we <sighs> coffee, coffee- Coffee tools, coffee. Coffee. Well, not really coffee equipment. Uh, We made stuff like Aeropress dice. We made decks of playing cards.
1: And so, where am I up to? Um, So, is the is the YouTube like like I said, it's a business. um, Is that something that would actually generate income from you through the advertising or and sponsorship, or is it actually the the merchandise that actually uh, comes? The
0: well, we're into the into the very YouTube. Um, classic chat of diversified revenue streams. So YouTube, yes, I I sort of make money from AdSense, sort of ads playing in front of videos. I make money from merch. I make money from uh, sponsored integrations where, you know, a YouTuber might read a 45 second ad for a brand or a website or whatever it's going to be. I have a very strange aspect of uh, YouTube where YouTube is great for sort of knowledge search and and a lot of people want to do product review on YouTube. The The problem with product review is that either you need to buy lots of stuff you don't particularly want and then you've got to, studio, house, whatever, full of stuff that you didn't particularly want but you wanted to make a video about, or you have to accept loaners and freebies from manufacturers, and doesn't make for an unbiased review. So I turned around to a website, uh, I used a website called Patreon, and oh, yeah. said, if, if, yeah. if you will support me on Patreon, I will spend the money uh, that you give me each month to buy equipment to review, and when I've reviewed it, I will give it away to one of you through a contest, because I don't want to keep it, I, I don't want more stuff in my life, uh, but I want to be able to buy this like a consumer... Uh, And um, that has sort of snowballed in and of itself to, it's just a monstrous thing. I, I, you know, I I leave it public because I sort of believe in the transparency, but at this point, seven and a half thousand people give me a little bit over $22,000 a month, uh, which is more than I can spend on equipment. And so it then goes back into a kind of an investment in the channel. I'm hiring, I'm kind of growing that team um, because I can't spend, like, I just can't spend the money on coffee kit uh, that's yeah. practical. Honestly, I'm going to review a, like a five kilo roaster and ship it to somebody, mm. but that's not really real. Um, but yeah, it, it's, um, it's definitely, you know, allowed me to build a business with a bunch of, you know, different revenue streams that has some security and you can start to hire when you have that, you know, like I've got a reasonable size studio to work from, a small team, uh, I, you know, I, I can invest in making this stuff and I have this safety net in that it's not my job. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I have other jobs and, you know, like if it fails and it all goes to you know hell, then okay, it was worth taking some risks then. And that gives me a lot of freedom that a lot of creators don't tend to have, especially when they get to my size, because they'll have the team and they'll have the, you know, uh, other stuff and and they'll feel they won't have the same safety net. And so I, I feel lucky that I can be kind of fun and experimental on on the platform with that. And then if we're rounding out the last things that I do, we're nearly there. I'm an advisor to a a few businesses, um, sort of tech startup type things, or not really tech startup. I mean, there's uh, Taika, an interesting canned coffee product, really not just coffee, kind of stealth health brand over in um, uh, San Francisco. I am an investor and an occasional advisor to a company in uh, Copenhagen called Empirical Spirits, who are probably the most interesting booze makers on the planet. And uh, there's like a couple of others as well that I sort of do a little bits and pieces with. I'm not an uh, angel investor. I'm not playing that particular game. But where there's an opportunity to work with an
1: interesting business, then I, I tend to look at that. It's just amazing how all this has unfolded. Is there a game plan or you just, it's very organic? The
0: world has demonstrated very clearly in the last 18 months that it has no interest in our plans. And you can you could have really great strategic plans for the next five or 10 years, but the world doesn't care, you know. I, so I, I feel much more not necessarily reactive, but much more fluid in that regard than I might have done when I was a little bit younger. You know, ultimately, I'm I'm aware I am in a fantastically lucky and privileged position. Like I can't deny that. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, uh, it, however hard I think I work, it still feels ridiculous that I'm in such a position. And I, you know, try and be responsible with that, but. Um, I want to make stuff that I'm proud of. And that's sort of the beginning and end of it. And that might be a business or that might be a video or that might be a product or that might be, I don't know what else. There's a lot of things to make, but things of value, things that I'm proud of, you know, the, the, I, I'm sort of driven by the the creative part of the process. I'm not very useful in a lot of businesses. Uh, I, you know, I stopped running Square Mile as a sort of MD <sighs> six or seven years ago because that's not my skill set. Yeah, I think so. I really would struggle to, to, uh, who knows, with time. But I think at least five or six years ago now there is a much, much more capable set of hands there and I can be useful to that person. She can call on me for what she needs from me but you, you know, you need a different kind of executor in a business of that size. Square Mile's not huge, you know what I mean? Like it's a good-sized business. It's a medium-sized business. It's a small, medium business. Go with that. 25-ish people, you know, like it's a, big enough that you're sort of spinning plates and that was never really my skill set, uh, you know, running a thing and I can do the idea generation or the creative or, or that kind of stuff. And there are then capable people to take that on and I can work with them to sort of deliver an, uh, an idea But because that's kind of where I'm best. I'm good at ideas and that's not, I don't think, hugely valuable unless you have the execution piece tied up. I don't think, I don't sign NDAs much because most ideas aren't worth anything. Mm. Um so I don't
1: think it's special to have ideas. I think it's special to be able to execute them. Um, so I could I could see your value as an advisor to businesses as well. Your experience, your mind, I, I can see with your role as you know trustee of the Allegra Foundation and the, the Project Waterfall, the the insight that you give uh, immense value. You've got that sort of considered, distant ability to look at a problem and solve a problem, and it, it's quite impressive, really. <laughs> kind of you to say. So. You've got so much going on. How do you allocate your time among all these things? How do you you prioritize? I mean, be very
0: clear, badly. Uh, Like this is most definitely not something I would say that I'm particularly good at. There's a mix, I suppose, with me with the kind of proactive and reactive stuff. Because I don't have a... A sort of active role. You know what I mean? I'm not doing anything. I'm not required inside any one business. You lucky person. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> it is, but it means that, you know, yep. they don't need me. They don't need me. So there's no point me planning to have time for Proofrock or for Square Mile or that kind of stuff if that's not a requirement of theirs. So that's much more reactive in that regard. So yeah, when we refer it, Proofrock I'll be there for architects meetings and help writing briefs and going through the, all of that kind of stuff because that's where I'm useful but you know most of that week to week that team has it all handled there's no value to me just turning up and be like so what can I do you know that's not useful then to some extent same with Square Mile like I'm I'm probably I'm obviously interested in what's happening and I'm, I'm will poke and prod and ask questions but at the same time they would, I'm a resource to them. That's the kind of setup where I can help someone with something and I'm just a sort of extra pair of hands or an extra brain or an extra sounding board or whatever it's going to be to the teams within there. It might be the roasting team. It might be the marketing team. It might be the MD. It doesn't really you know, matter if they need some help, then I just have to react. So a chunk of my time is reactive. And then there's the sort of more proactive time, which is these days, honestly, YouTube is, a, is an enormous time sink for me. I don't have a ton of time and, and it gets probably the most, but it's the right time to pour the fuel on that fire. And if I think about a return on my investment, I, I'm not particularly interested in being famous. That's not really the uh, the goal here. I don't want to be a celebrity in any regard. That freaks me out and kind of, you know, people mostly yell nice things at me in the street and that's okay. You know, like... Uh, <laughs> You know, 500 meters from here earlier this morning, someone was like, hey, you cycled past. Like, hey, I love your yeah. show. And you're like, thank yeah. you very much. That's nice. That's fine. But but that's enough. You know what I mean? I don't want any more than that. Um, well, there's a television program coming soon, I'm sure. <laughs> well, like I turn most of it down. Yeah. Like, it, because I'm not really interested in being in front of people who are interested in what I do. And, you know, I guess with the world shifting to streaming, that's maybe a different thing, you know. People who watch me on YouTube choose to do so. If I turned up on BBC One at 8 p.m., There's an enormous number of people who did not choose to watch me; they just had the telly on, and they have a different relationship with me and my weird coffee obsession than the people who sought me out to, you know, hear what I have to say about something or learn something. You know what I mean? So yeah, broader, broader, celebrity is not interesting. But I think the work I'm interested in doing through YouTube is reaching people who care a little bit about coffee, right? And I want to find them, uh, entertain them, gain their trust and take them on a journey over time where they see coffee as having a greater value in their lives. Because I think that our excuses for being an abusive and unfair industry get very thin once we have a consumer who's willing to pay more, who sees more value in what we do. And we can't be like, oh, well, we can't pay more because people just won't you know, accept the pricing. Well, they're like, well let's change that. You know, we're trying to change lots of aspects of coffee. I think we also have to work on consumer perception and relationship with coffee, especially specialty coffee we became this very pretentious, exclusive, high-end, snobby thing for uh, for maybe five years in London, certainly, and actually around the world, right? Like we were, we didn't market ourselves terribly well. And I think we missed an opportunity. You know, I still think there are millions of people who could care just a little bit more about their coffee, enough to spend 10, 20% more because they get why, right? Like that's the the shift. And, you know, it, it is I think YouTube is the bit where you, you realise the scale is enormous, right? I'm still a relatively small channel in the great scheme of YouTube. Two million people a month will come by, to, to individuals yep. to to watch me talk absolute nonsense about coffee, right? It's that a lot of phenomenal. people, yeah. But it, but if that's you know what's their what's their annual spend on coffee, that group of two million people, I would say it's it's going to be creeping towards a billion probably by the time they bought equipment, everything else. If you can move that kind of a spend in a positive direction and they benefit from it, then that's just very interesting to me. So I'm just, I I don't want to be famous. I want to find people who care a little bit about coffee, who enjoy it just a little bit. And I want them to to enjoy it a little bit more. And that's the the function of that channel. That's the purpose. That's what's going on behind idea generation, behind how you plan or talk about, you know, uh, the sort of narrative arc of a video. Because that's what I'm I'm trying to do. That's satisfying work, you know, like uh and, and I see the return in the comments. I see the feedback of like, I you know, you've made me weird about coffee. And I'm like, great. You don't have to get fully weird, but just, you know, like you, you know, don't don't end up like me. But you can <laughs> you can, you know, enjoy coffee a little bit more. Because coffee's great. And most people endure coffee, they don't enjoy it. They they kind of need it, go through that kind of, you know, here's my instant, here's my whatever. Okay, I'm functional. But it doesn't have to be that way. And, you know, that's a kind of, that's the, I've drifted off the entrepreneur and No, stuff, but, I, aware, I get, but I like, get the,
1: so I'm, I'm into that point, the entrepreneur, what drives the entrepreneur. So you mentioned earlier it was the creative process, but I'm getting the sense now that what drives you now is is a broader mission of evangelizing coffee for the better good. I mean, is that... Yeah, and I think that, again,
0: a bit like I don't think I have to have one job title. I I don't think I have to have one thing. Like, I I, want to achieve this work through making stuff that I'm proud of, right? Like, they're very much intertwined. And that might be a video. That might be another book. That might be a weird little coffee accessory of some sort that just amuses people, delights people, whatever it's going to be. Like, it all sort of feeds into the same thing because I don't know how else to, with my placement, my resources, and what I'm good at. I I don't know how else, and this might be a, a lack of imagination, and I would accept that to sort of have a positive impact on this industry that I love dearly, that I really hate being a part of because it is so broken by design. In its you know, call it equality or ethics, like it's all bad. And even those of us that try to oper- operate more ethically are really doing it within the framework of an unethical industry.
1: What's the, the central point there? Is it the lack of looking after the farmers and not, not enough livelihood for the farmers? Is it environmental? What is your, what makes you say it's a broken industry? Oh, I mean, like the, co- the coffee trade was find uh, cheap land and
0: cheap labor, have it produce products, export their product back to the colonial invader to do all the value addition so you extract as, as much value as possible, as cheaply as possible from your sort of colonies right? Like that's how coffee was created. That's why coffee was taken to South America in the first place, why it was taken to most of the countries as it was grown. It was like, here is some land, here is some people that I can abuse into giving me this product for cheap. I can take it back and make myself rich once I'm back in the UK, France, the Netherlands, wherever it's going to be, right? That system still is kind of the same, right? It's why we have producers still producing coffee below the cost of you know, receiving, you know, below the cost of production for their coffee. It's why we have the price of coffee at the whims of traders who aren't really touching the coffee. They're, they're buying and selling contracts, right? Like it, that's not a system designed to do anything other than enrich one particular aspect of it while extracting as much value as possible from the rest of it. And, you know, paying a premium for green coffee has been a lovely idea that the industry has sold very hard for the last 15 to 20 years. And every single study has said, yeah, but you just haven't made any difference. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, sure. By and large, to be more depressing, by and large, um, most of the producers who've taken most of the money had more capital to start with. They were English-speaking, American-educated. They owned their own farms. They had enough money to experiment to market themselves. So, if you look at where those really high-priced lots end up, generally speaking, it's not indigenous peoples farming small bits of land. It's you know, uh, college-educated, wealthy farmers in those sort of places. There was a study which is you you could earn a premium simply by speaking English, right? As a a Guatemalan producer, they did a big study in Guatemala. And if you couldn't speak English, on average, your price was lower. And it was nothing to do with the quality of your coffee. We tell ourselves it's all about the quality of the coffee, but that's just not what we've seen manifested by the industry at large. And that's that's this case of like, I don't think it's individual bad act. Well, there are individual bad actors. I'm not saying everyone participating is a bad actor. But we have this kind of unfortunate wisdom of the crowds, this mass effect by working within what is ultimately a framework designed to, to leave the farmers with as little power and money as possible, because that, that works really well for everyone else in the supply chain.
1: Do businesses like Square Mile and others, specialty coffee crew, are they going to change that? Are they part of the solution? It's a very big question, and it's one that we regularly wrestle with and continue to wrestle with. I don't
0: think one company is ever going to make enough no. change, right? Like so, collective. Yeah, there's a need for collective change, and uh, you know, I think within the confines of capitalism, you have this other sort of requirement, which is change needs to be an advantage in the market to really see widespread adoption. You know, and, uh, and I think that was what drove the adoption of certification, right? Ethical, like fair trade or other certification, when having that on your bag sold more coffee. That's when the certifications really took off, right? When people would choose fair trade bananas over non-fair trade bananas, that's when the advantage of that certification drove adoption. There wasn't ethics that drove widespread adoption, it was advantage. I think there's more and more conversation about this. I think more and more businesses probably realize that it's, it's just paying a premium and saying where the coffee is from doesn't actually have the impact that you want, because I think there are lots of people who want to have an impact. Right, I think there are lots of companies that want to do better, and I think there's a sort of feeling of casting around of like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do now. You know, in a highly competitive market, I don't want to don't want to risk my business. But um, yeah, I, I think there's a desire for change and a lack of leadership and ideas there. And I think I would like to be supportive of whatever change is, is possible.
1: You certainly are. You you are certainly been one of those, I guess, guides to the future for a lot of people about you know the upward lift in quality standards and. The aspirations of coffee and everything you, you appear to be doing—you've you've set sort of the pinnacle of <laughs> coffee, but also showing that there's a business. Um, this can be a business, sure, um, which I, th- I think is super important because I think if you just go out to save the world, you know, without, as you said, some kind of a an advantage, a commercial advantage, it's just not going to fly. So, switching gears now, if you were to invest in in any, any new ventures, now what? you know, what would be your criterion thinking behind those? Is it just literally each as an individual idea taking on its merits or plugging into um, maybe a kind of a jigsaw puzzle that you're building around areas that you want to explore in the coffee industry? So is it more fitting in with the grand plan or just new ideas that come and go, ah, that's something that I'd love to be involved in?
0: I think what I get more interested in now is is stuff either on the periphery of coffee or actually outside of coffee at this point. I think um coffee is an industry that's very interesting but it, it lacks a bit of cross-pollination for me sometimes. And and where you do see it, I think you see a lot of interesting stuff. And like I said, I'm not I'm not aiming to take on like a sort of a, I'm not trying to grow a portfolio of active investments because I don't have the time to deliver anything else, you know, beyond, you know, a little help, but certainly not enough to to demand significant chunks chunks of anything uh, business-wise you know I think that um the businesses I remain more interested in are helpful uh, rather than sort of um just looking to do wealth extraction you know what I mean like I, I'm not interested in someone who's just trying to build a thing to sell a thing and flip it for 10x and you know just do I, do I want to gamble and, and put my money in this you know bucket that might flip 10x or this one or this one this one that there's a sort of Realm of investing, I'm not super interested in uh, because there's just, I think, more fun ways to gamble. Where I would invest, it would be either because they're doing something transformative and interesting and fun, or where I stand to learn a ton from my relationship there as well. I've learned this lesson, nearly, nearly learned this lesson, which is there needs to be more no in my life. Uh, You know, like uh, it's easy to take on too much stuff. It's easy to overestimate my capacity to make or do or deliver on something. And, um, you know, most of the people I disappoint, it's because I would say, I just, I can't make you a promise. I'm not going to keep. And so, you know, uh, I'm still, I'm sort of in this mad phase where YouTube as a thing consumes a huge amount of my time. If that wasn't the case, then I think that would flip my strategy around. And that's a sort of separate piece. But really at this point, you know, uh, I look at what I have to take care of or think about, or which accounts I have to put my name at the bottom of, you know, sign my liability onto mm. is enough. I've met enough Millionaires now to have no interest in that. They've all been uniformly miserable people because, uh, of course, they are. Uh, why wouldn't you be at that point? Like that's that, that's not a particularly interesting aspect for me. I'm not trying to accrue tens or hundreds of millions. That's just not interesting. Uh, you know, like that's there's just no need as I see it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like if someone turned around and offered an enormous amount of money, sure, great, but I would hope to do something interesting with it afterwards. Anyway. So that's kind of my, my kind of uh, situation right now, which is I'm trying to say a lot of no's and very careful yeses. But for me, there needs to be a payback of, of, of either delight,
1: learning, or impact. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about you as a young child about that the <laughs> young James Hoffman in, sure. in terms of, you know, w- were you always going to be an entrepreneur? Were you always so, I guess, self-driven and, and creative? I kind of see you as also as a sort of a scientist. Where you're exploring and inquisitive, and what was the what was the young James Hoffman like?
0: I definitely, I mean, it, yeah, I did not think I'd be an entrepreneur until I was in a fun sort of way. Uh, my father was a serial entrepreneur; like he started loads oh, of different businesses. Okay, and I never thought that that was what would my my sort of you know half-brothered the same. He's built loads of businesses um, and very driven by that kind of part of the process. And I, I kind of wasn't growing up. I was a nerdy kid, unsurprisingly. Like I I was a, you know, a, a quiet kid that read a lot and, you know, quite liked school to a point. Um, when And you read I... You at school? Yeah. I mean, I was unfortunately privately educated for which, I, you know, um, do not have kind things to say about, uh, you know, whatever people's, stereotypes about privately educated kids probably right to be honest i hated it Uh, i did not like it at all but a lot of people do um but i did well enough until i hit about sort of well until i hit puberty really and then sort of like the classic apathy kicked in and uh trying stopped and i sort of coasted as far as i could on minimal effort which is why i have a complete nonsense degree from a reasonable university so yeah like i i I peaked academically at about 13 and i was you know like a scholarship kid and all that kind of stuff and you know that was definitely the smartest I ever was. And then a steady decline from that point onward, certainly in terms of uh,
1: effort and stuff.
0: And, you know, like, uh, I, I think I liked the idea of being a musician. I tried
1: to do that for a oh, while. No, you had that string to your vote. No, no, well, I mean, clearly, <laughs> clearly not successfully.
0: Um, you know like uh, that was the idea of that was that was you know the that pie in the sky dream of like late teens early 20s me worked in music publishing for a little bit hated it have
1: you got any songs we could put uh, one of your, your tracks no no on no, 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 that no. This, people find them people, people,
0: people have found them and played them in barista competition routines that wow. I was judging and I'm like that's just made me feel really awkward um, but bless Gosh, you for intense. your research yeah no well anyway these things kind of creep up on you in that regard uh, you know I, I never considered myself like a DIY person, do you know what I mean? Like that kind of a person. But I remember really early days in Square Mile, our archway was, was broken into. And and I just remember being kind of stunned at my sense of loss over the tools that had been taken. And I was like, well, since when did I care this much about tools? When, what has happened to me? And, you know, I'd gone from being this person who was never interested in entrepreneurship to being a person that had started a business. And, you know, that that kind of hadn't really thought too much about it. I think a lot of people a lot of people overthink certain aspects of starting a business. I'm not very good at that bit. I tend to overthink other stuff. If you'd asked me at age 18, are you entrepreneurial? Are you good at taking machines to pieces or that kind of stuff? I'd have been like, no, and I never will be. And then, you know, 10 years later, 12 years later, the opposite is true. And so, you know, as much as we feel like we are fixed in who we are, I don't think that's true. So again, it's why I've never been particularly strong on the labeling piece of like, I am entrepreneurial. I did not think that for about half my life. So, you know, things come and go, things change. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that was me. I think, um, I think once I understood the pleasure of entrepreneurship, which is kind of building a machine and tinkering with it till it runs just nicely. That's very enjoyable. You know, creating a thing that wasn't there before. And I, I like, you know, I found I, I always find Square Mile probably the most satisfying of businesses because, y- you know, it's very easy now to do work where. You go to work, you sit down at a desk, and at the end of the day, you have slightly less digital stuff in your inbox than you had at the start of the day, and it'll be back tomorrow, be full again, right? You, you write emails for a day, and all you've done is make some digital stuff disappear. Whereas if you go and you pack coffee, at the end of the day, you've got shelves, walls of stuff that you made, stuff that you made with your Physical hands that you stuff. can sell for more money than it costs to buy and make. And that's a great, do you know what I mean, that's satisfaction in, in both business and just making stuff that is, I think, quite addictive. And, and you know, the, I, I think I was happy to let Coffee Jobs as a business go because it, 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 didn't, it did a good service, it did a good job, but I, it was hard to be passionate about a thing that I never could touch. You know what I mean? I think I'm still driven by making things that I can interact with in some way. I mean, you, you take a lot on, but you, you seem to be able to let go of things as well. Yeah, I hope so. I think, um, you know, we started, we started Square Mile with this intention of having a cafe and putting a little roaster at the back and having a really great cafe that roasted its own coffee. And we might do a bit of wholesale. And um, I think if I had been, if we had been rigid about that idea, unable to let it go, that company, that business would have died within a year. Because firstly, we didn't really know what we were doing. Secondly, it was a terrible time to start that kind of a business. London wasn't interested, wasn't ready. Our location wasn't as good as we thought. All of those things Hindsight, wonderful thing. But at the time, the ability to say, oh, let's just let go of that particular goal. What are we really interested in? You know, one layer deeper. Let's keep doing that and, and start doing that. And, and I think there's been a number of occasions with either locations or opportunities where the ability to be flexible, I think, is, is, is very important. You should have things that you stick to that you're driven by. But I think being rigid and unflexible now is, is you know, the strength of your convictions will go so far. But I think you can easily get stuck trying to do a thing that just isn't going to work. And I see all the time still, I see people try and build businesses where they, they've decided what it's going to be and they don't have that kind of adaptability or flexibility when the world changes around them to respond.
1: Success, it's, it's so many levels and so many, you know, in so many areas. What about things that you just feel like didn't go the way you wanted it to go? What What are the failures or what are the, well, learnings perhaps? Or the unsatisfied. It's a good needs. question.
0: And I'm 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 not gonna say I haven't had any, because I definitely have. I'm just trying to struggle to think about them. I mean, I I've been lucky in that none have been significant right. or, or catastrophic, sure. you know, like um started a magazine at one point and, and enjoyed that, made a few issues. As proud as I was of, of what it was, people didn't really want to read it. People at that point didn't want to read coffee magazines that that made them uncomfortable. And that's kind of what we wanted to make.
1: What about opportunities you wish you would have spotted? Do
0: you know, I, I just, I don't have a brain that thinks that way. I, I'm very lucky because I can see it, the other extreme, it, it cripples people, the, the what ifs of life. You just set yourself up to be constantly dissatisfied in life because there's always a better decision. There's always a better option. You could have always had more success, more money, more something, but you didn't and you can't do anything about it. So what is the benefit? You can learn from the mistake, but there's no point feeling a negative emotion about it. You may as well feel a positive emotion about a better decision in the
1: future if you ever were to describe your leadership style, you know that you've got a lot of people working for you in, in various diverse roles. Do you see yourself as a leader? Do you, um, could you describe your leadership style? Is it different in each business? is it in each activity?
0: I think it, it has to be different in each business and I think it's increasingly difficult where you know in businesses I might have this awkward position of sort of leader. But also just kind of figurehead in a funny sort of way, and mm-hmm. there is there is leadership in that position of being highly visible and and that kind of stuff. And I think I'm lucky in that I'm probably a salesman in my leadership style. Really, like mm-hmm. I, I I love I love to sell ideas. I love to kind of bring people around an idea and a vision and get them excited about going and doing something collectively because I feel like that's. That's always worked this I've enjoyed I've enjoyed working for people that had vision when I when I you know when I back when I worked for Steve Pink he very clearly knew what he was trying to do and he had me 100% bought into that you know what I mean and it made going to work satisfying it made the wins of of of, of a day a day-to-day win bigger because it felt you were feeding into this bigger kind of goal of kind of kickstarting this new coffee culture that we could see outside of the UK in the UK, right? That was definitely a part of it, and obviously, a boom in coffee culture would see a boom in espresso machines, and that was this—you know—the the wider strategy there. That's probably the best way of describing the way I tend to try and
1: work with people. Is—is is I'm a salesman. I so, like in the Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell kind of triangle of—I oh, don't know—salesman, <laughs> connector, and maven. I mean, you're very much a maven in the coffee industry as well. But yeah, the, the
0: yeah, I think I—I I don't have the—I'm not wired. I'm an introvert at heart. Uh, I'm not wired to be a connector. You right. know what I mean? It's not what I'm good at. I know people that are, and I respect, I respect it a lot because it's, it's a talent I do not have anything of. I think a salesman, yes. Maven, maybe. Connector, probably not. Right. You know, I think that's a pretty good summary yeah, two, of... Two, two out two, of three yeah, of the right, triangle. That's the yeah. point,
1: right? That you can only have two of the three. Is that That's usually how these triangles work. <laughs> Well, the, the, uh, the three-triangled stool um, is, <laughs> is standing <laughs> very solidly uh, through magic. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, you can, in theory, you're supposed to only have, uh, only have one of those legs of the All stool. Right. That I'll you... take Salesman then. I'll take Salesman. Uh, coronavirus, we, we say, I think we wouldn't talk about it. But let's, let's just do one little opportunity or bad for the industry. I mean, the, the, the bleakest response is both,
0: right? Like, um, not that I'm pro-disaster capitalism, but like, you know, I think um, there has to be an opportunity. You you have to see opportunity because there's change happening and where there's change in behavior, change the way people are moving, p- people are consuming, people are buying, where people are buying, how people are buying. If you don't see opportunity in that, well, that's the flexibility piece, right? Like you might have set your sights on being a bricks and mortar business. And that's not an option anymore. And, and you know, we've seen, I think, in the coffee industry, those who've pivoted effectively and moved to where the consumers are while still retaining their brand and their integrity and all that kind of stuff. And those that haven't, those that have been sort of blindsided by this or, you know, are hibernating at the moment, hoping that things go back to the way they were and they won't. So yeah, it's been damaging. And I think globally, it's been extremely damaging. And, and without wanting to get into politics You know, I think obviously the way that governments around the world have responded and supported businesses has varied quite dramatically. You know, I think we had always hoped for more. I think hospitality, in particular in the UK, has been hard done by, not just coffee, but hospitality as a whole. I think it's had a very difficult time, and probably not the support that a more ambitious government in that regard might have given, staying away from the politics. Uh, But yeah, I think um, where there's change, there's opportunity, and there's enormous change. Right, I mean... Subscriptions. Absolutely. People, I think, you know... I think something, uh, I'll not steal his words, Colin Harmon said to me really early on in the pandemic was that, you know, I think people are, a lot of people are about to learn just how delightful a coffee subscription is. That that it just turns up. It just comes through your door and it's there. And you don't run out of coffee. And it's great. And you've just got great coffee and it's easy. and It's glorious. And I'm a little bit excited to get a bit of mail. And that's nice. And, uh, you know, I think everyone has seen a growth in subscriptions, you know. and And I think there'll be inevitably some shrinkage. But I think a lot of people just now want this as a part of their life. You know what I mean? Like it's just an automation of a thing. They might buy bits and pieces on top still, but they'll probably have a base subscription of coffee in their life. And that's not going to be weird or unusual anymore. I think that's just going to be an increasingly mainstream thing. And, you know, we've seen enormous adoption of espresso machines at home or brewing equipment at home. You know, Baratza, you know, had a great time to have a, a, you know, explosive growth right before an exit, you know, like, uh, you know, Breville acquiring them was pretty bad timing for Breville, but great timing for Baratza because they were absolutely at their capacity for production, right? Like uh, home grinder manufacturers around the world have struggled to meet demand that's come out of nowhere. And those grinders aren't going anywhere. They, you know, people know how good that is now. People know how enjoyable that can be and how little work it really is for the return that you get. So yes, there's a lot of change there. And I think that has an impact for a bunch of coffee businesses where historically, I think. Nobody thought that, that coffee at home was competing with coffee out of home because how we used coffee out of home was different, right? We, we used it as a pick-me-up on the way to the train station or getting off the train on the way to the office. We used it for meetings. We used it for a break. We used it for little moments of treating ourselves, that kind of stuff. Coffee at home was highly functional for most people, which is get caffeine into my body relatively early and then I can kind of start functioning and then I'll well, have something better later on in the day those train station hubs have competition at home now, right? Like if the choice is I can spend three pounds either at Waterloo or at my local train station or 50p for something better that I can make myself because I've got all the kit now, mm, which way am I going to go? I can really just brew a nice little filter coffee in the morning, throw it in a thermos, be on the train, have a nice coffee on the way to work. And yeah, I'll still treat myself. I'll still go out and get a flat white at lunchtime or, you know, I'll still take a nice meeting in a nice coffee shop with someone and, and have something delicious and a little treat. That's not going to change. But I think the the sort of functional out of home coffee is now much under much more competitive pressure of people's at home setups. And it's, I think, I don't think we've got hard data yet for, you might have hard data if you do, let me know, of how many people have bought coffee grinders, how, how much of the industry has switched from potentially instant to fresh coffee, from coffee out to coffee in. Like, I don't think we yet understand the size of that swing, but it's there. And I think it's significant. And, uh, you know, the growth that we've seen at Square Mile is huge and has sustained, right? Like, well, we're still growing year on year now. And, and that's, you know, the year, you know, month on, you know, if we a, not year to date, but let's say April 2021 versus 2020, those are both pandemic times. There's still growth there, which is kind of amazing. And so, yeah, if, if every roaster
1: tripled their online business,
0: that's a, that's a, I suspect most of them did. Or
1: at least doubled. I'm, I'm hearing, yeah, I, there, is, there are people that have gone up sixfold, um, tenfold at home. Depends yeah. where they started from. Of course. You probably started from a, a much stronger base. I mean, I think you were already ahead of the game in terms of, you know, having, you know, uh, quite an astute customer base who are buying from you internationally, um, you know, well beyond COVID. But uh, there are people starting from scratch almost. And
0: Oh, absolutely. We, yeah, we've seen it everywhere. And so that's... That spend was going somewhere else. Where mm. was it going? It was going to coffee shops, but which ones? Mm. And, and you know, if I think about what they've replaced, I don't think it's a great flat white or a great pour over at 11 in the morning with a friend or a treat or the special end of specialty. I think it's much more functional stuff that I was willing to pay two pounds for because I just couldn't get my life together or I don't have anything to make coffee with in the morning. I don't want an instant, but, I you know, so I'll just get this from... Yeah wherever at the train station.
1: Oh, well, and hopefully all that translates into more YouTube views. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Do you feel that the, you know, the COVID year that we've had now has given a much bigger audience to people? Unquestionably. Yeah. Unquestionably. I think, you know, it's not been universal
0: for every creator on YouTube. I think it really depends what you do. Mm. Um, but yes, I, I see the growth spike from really May last year. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, I think from a subscription or subscriber's point of view, I was probably about 200, 250 about a year ago. I'm about uh, 800 and something now. Wow. So that's a lot of growth in a year. Yeah. No question. Like, it's a lot of growth in a year. Um, and, yeah, it's transformed it as a business, you know, into being an extremely viable business that demands resource and attention and time. Um, but that's not a bad thing. We've had a bit more, you know, time away from our workplaces to, to do that stuff.
1: Well, certainly. So um, one final question. What's the future look like for Hoffman Inc.? Hoffman... It's it's Hoffman Industries is the whole thing. I kind (laughs)
0: of liked the idea of a business that sounded vaguely evil. Hoffman Industries, Hoffman Industries. And the logo is vaguely evil. Just so people are like, what are you doing there? Like, what is happening within Hoffman Industries? Um, What's next? Uh, So upcoming projects, yes, there is a a book that I need to write in the next couple of months. um, But that will be its own sort of thing. You know if you want to get into the strategy of, of um, uh, YouTube for a second, I'm not going to be doing this the way I'm doing it now in five years' time. Right? Like, that's just, it's just not viable for me. I I, I don't want to be doing six to eight videos a month because that's actually an enormous amount of production to happen and, unless I want to build a small media business that just, you know, does that. And I'm not sure I really want to do that. So the question is, if I if I don't want to do that, Well, then what do you do? I'm building an audience. I'm building all of this kind of stuff. What's what 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 do you do with this? And I don't necessarily have a good answer for this, but this is a question that most YouTubers who go through a growth phase have to answer. I will not see the popularity that I see now forever. It doesn't happen. There's always a bell curve. I will always, you know. And the question is, how do you maximize your opportunity that you built at the top of the bell curve? I don't know the answer to that question, but I'll, you know, that's the answering that question is is a is at the not the top of my brain, but it's certainly an aspect of kind of entrepreneurial thinking, which is I'll be happy to have done the work. But if I want to make the most of my opportunity, you know, and it's not transition to TV, you know, which for some YouTubers, it definitely is. Like I want to go and have a, a media career. I'm not interested in that. And maybe the work is done and maybe there's nothing, you know, maybe it just finishes or maybe it just slows down and it's just a little thing that's fun or whatever else. I don't know. But, you know, you can't presume the same level of growth forever. You can't presume the same level of income or revenue or all that kind of stuff forever. And if you know that's going to happen, well, how do you plan for that? That's the that's the question I spend my time thinking about.
1: I'm sure we'll find out in due course. <laughs> and um, we're expecting a lot, lot more. So oh, thanks. Great. Thanks so much, James. It's been great having you here at Serendipity Studios for Fifth Wave. Been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd really appreciate a good rating if you've enjoyed this show. Also, get in touch with us and tell us what topics you'd like to hear so we can make this podcast more relevant to you and to your business. You can follow the link in the show notes to worldcoffeeportal.com slash fifthwave. This episode was recorded in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Geoffrey Young, the World Coffee Portal team, James Harper of Filter Productions, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. Have a great week, and until next time, stay safe and stay caffeinated.